So I am delighted to be here, and it uh, certainly is an honor to get to uh, participate and to be a speaker and to take your time, and for me to be up here uh, uh, taking uh, from you. And I hope that uh, what we have the little information to cover will be of some degree of, of uh, interest to you. So uh, before I get started, uh, you know that I, as what she had said, I'm a World War II uh, has been. And uh, you know if you, I, I'm going to tell you how old I am before I get started because if I don't, you're going to spend half of the time with your fuzzy mask trying to figure it out. <laughs> and I know how we think, you know. And so I'll tell you that on uh, uh, Pearl Harbor Day, which is just a few days away, December 7, I will be 85 years old. So, <laughs> you might live that long yourself, who knows. So be careful, <laughs> you, you might be there too. But uh, while I'm uh, thinking, uh, I have no uh, uh, agenda, you might say, exactly how to go. I kind of fill it in as, as, uh, uh, as I go, as far as that goes, and usually have an information overload, so it's a matter of my picking out which way to, to go when I want to go. But the first thing that usually people will ask about, what was my uh, uh, first impression about wanting to fly an airplane, which back in the World War II time was uh, a, little, a little more than unusual for girls to be doing any flying at all on their own. Now the first time that, that uh, I flew in an airplane, I was eight years old. All right, as at my age at eight years old, uh, that was like in 1928, and uh, I had never uh, seen an airplane before then, but I lived in a uh, small oil town in, in Texas, in the Re in Reagan County area, close to San Angelo, and uh, uh, the airplane came around, I'm sure it must have been a World War I pilot, with his biplane, airplane, open cockpit, of course, and he comes around the little town and he buzzes around and uh, uh, burps on his throttle, you know, burp, 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 so you, and everybody thought, wow, what's that? Whoever heard something in the air in those days, uh, there was nothing in the air around, you never saw an airplane, never heard one, and at eight years old, uh, keep in mind, we didn't have television, when we did, I didn't have any uh, National Geographic uh, uh, magazines or anything to show me anything really about an airplane, and I never thought about an airplane. And back in, as my girls say, back in the olden days, mother, that's true. I didn't know anything about airplanes. So the uh, planes would fly around and wiggle his wings when he got through and take off in a direction. Now that was supposed to tell the observer that uh, he wa he's going to land out there somewhere if he finds a little pea patch where he thinks he can land. And you're supposed to come out and buy a ticket and help him pay for his gas. So my father uh, came after me. My father was a jeweler, had several jewelry stores in towns uh, around us in Reagan County in Big Lake. And uh, he came after me and said, let's go find the airplane. Oh, yes, of course. So we uh, go, sure enough, we find the airplane. And my father buys me a ticket 
and I crawl in the little eight-year-old crawling up in this airplane to get in the cockpit and we uh, take off and I remember taking off and looking up I had never seen anything and knew what it was supposed to look like up from the ground and I saw all the horizon around here Ooh, the world just looks so big from up here I was so impressed and little kid hanging her head over the window hair blowing and everything and next thing uh, it occurred to me what am I doing up here in this element God made this for birds it didn't make it for me what am I doing up here and as I looked around what kind of a contraption am I in anyway I don't know what an airplane was but you can see how uh, revealing all of this was to me and how excited I was about it now to think about it children today uh, they see everything way down here and nothing is anything that would be exhilarating I don't think any of them would ever get the thrill that I got never having seen anything like that or even know what it was about and so my father not being a pilot himself he'd buy himself a ticket and uh, came down and he thought it was great too and we go leave the area hand in hand giggling and just thinking oh wasn't that the greatest thing so I had two brothers uh, two years older two years younger and my father would go get the boys but through the years this happened a few times before I got out of high school and uh, uh, my father always came after me by myself and that was always such special times uh, for me uh, and, and made a real excitement out of airplanes and uh, getting to go in airplanes now uh, as uh, old as I am uh, keep in mind I doubt that there are many of you in here as old and certainly not much older than I uh, what new things that I have seen and you have seen as long as you have lived all of the uh, technology and everything as it has gone up and it's really appalling to me the things that God has revealed to us in today's time say from 1900 on up to where we are right now God has revealed all kinds of things to mankind that he never revealed in thousands of years back here we are a privileged group to have seen the technology and everything that has been revealed to us one of the major major things now was the airplane with the Wright brothers and uh, a whole new uh, concept and look where we've come from there look at, at uh, the uh, technology here we have have television whoever heard of, of anything like a television and there's some scriptures in Bible that you without knowing about television you can't figure it out but now that we've got television oh I know what that means that's we have television for that now we've got satellites and I'm sure that God has given us a lot of this to get his message out to the world and uh, then uh, we uh, have from the satellites and everything we have a lot of uh, other we can't go into all the many things that we do have now children today uh, seeing television and, and uh, uh, this aspect and that uh, you know like no big deal we expect it and so uh, they they hear say well uh, you know a cell phone now can take pictures well no big deal to them but look that is a big deal and and uh, look at other things that we've had look at all 
we've had Kleenex and wax paper and foil and everything else. All these little things that we have had that we wouldn't have had before with the technology that we have. Now, from the time that I flew the airplane that many years ago, and I didn't even have any idea that there was anything like that existing. I have come through the flying years and all the other years that I have lived, and guess what the end that had? I got to get in a real space shuttle uh, a few weeks ago when the Discovery went up. I got to sit in the pilot seat of the Atlanta space shuttle, the for real space shuttle. Now think how far that was from way back from here and getting into the space. Look how far we have come that God has revealed and let man know and have all of this kind of thing. So uh, we now are going to think about going back now to uh, the time frame by uh, World War II. Get back to this. So I have been asked, uh, why, uh, how'd you get, uh, how'd you ever start to fly an airplane? Why did you want to do that? Well, uh, being, knowing what I did about uh, uh, flying, uh, in my second year of Baylor University, uh, my father called me and said, guess what? I have bought our family a silver Luscom airplane. I said, yay, a silver, uh, an airplane at all, you know, and certainly one of the shiny silver ones in that day, that was a real uh, uh, shiny little egg to have. And so uh, I, I thought, oh, I want to go home. That was about in the middle of the spring semester. I want to go home and fly the airplane. But I've got to finish this semester, I just know, and I'd always made straight A's. I thought I was probably going to flunk out then. But sure enough, sure enough, I didn't. I graduated honors eventually. But... Uh, I got, uh, the summer came up and I got to go home and start flying the airplane. So there were my two brothers and I, my father and I, all four of us learned to fly that airplane at the same time. Now we had a little schedule, you know, like in the ball, who's on first and who's on second, who gets it now and everything. And so I thought, well, uh, there, uh, the oil and the engine, I know, never did get cold because we had that thing up all the time. And so one day, uh, the uh, local newspaper came out, and here was my father's picture on it. And my brothers and I looking at the paper, they had interviewed my father. And they had asked him, whatever possessed you, Mr. Muller, to buy an airplane, which was unusual. This was 1939 and 40 era there unusual for a family to have an airplane. And uh, I said, why did you buy it? And my brothers and I thought, I oh, wonder why he did buy it. We never thought why he bought it. We didn't care. We had it. Who cares why he bought it, you know? So it never crossed our mind, why? And guess what his answer was? As we were reading like crazy. His answer was, I think America is going to get in the war. Now, he had been watching Hitler. This is 1940. And uh, he said, I think America is going to get in the war, and I want my children to be able to contribute to the war effort. And we said, thanks a lot, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to get his three 
uh, military age kids prepared to be able to contribute. And we thought, wow, who ever thought of a war? Now, I'd had two years of college. Nobody told me a war was going to come up. After all, I'd learned in high school that uh, there was a World War I, and we were the winners, by golly. And we weren't going to mess around with that world bit anymore. And so I had the idea, you know, we were through. So I go to college. Nobody told me in college that we were getting ready for a war. So this was big news uh, uh, to us. So we continued going on uh, a fine. And so uh, we all get our private pilot license. We get our, our commercial license. And then I go on and get uh, licenses in all the ground school subjects of uh, teaching in the ground school of fine. Then I uh, work on my instructor rating in the air. So I get my instructor rating in the air. So then I started teaching some classes. Now, in case that you didn't even know that the, uh, our taxpayer was paying for different uh, aviation classes in those days, uh, we were taxpayers paying for it. Now, uh, we, as a nation, were not really ready for the war. Now, we knew that. But ahead of time, as far back as 1940, in 41, someone in, in D.C. was thinking, and knowing particularly the fairing division was behind this uh, idea, that they wanted, uh, it takes too long to train a pilot. America didn't have enough pilots. So they gave this uh, class idea to the general public of civilian men. And they told all civilian men in the area with a wide range, probably 19 years, maybe to even 35, a long range here. Any man, no matter what profession he was in, that he could get free uh, ground school uh, classes, just come out to the airport and you'll get ground school classes. And if you uh, are one of 10 men in a, a class of 50 students, and you are in the top 10 of the paper grades that you make in the classroom, you will get a private pilot license paid for by the taxpayer. So the, the civilian man could get a, a private pilot license and not have to pay anything for it. He got one of the scholarships. And so as I look back on it, uh, in the meantime now, we had moved to Odessa, Texas. So this uh, flying takes place in Odessa, Texas, where uh, my father moved and he had jewelry stores in several towns around Odessa. Uh, so uh, we all got into that and, and uh, uh, got our licenses and everything. And going back to the class now, I had uh, three classes, one morning, one afternoon, and one night. And so I looked back, I don't know where all these men came from, but there were gobs of them there. But guess what I got out of one of those classes? A husband. <laughs> I tell you what, he had already had six years of college, a couple of engineering degrees before I ever met him, working for, for Phillips Petroleum. And so I taught him how to fly, but it took me three years to land him. <laughs> the war came along, and uh, he did his thing, and I did mine, and we got together three years later. And so not only three years later we got together, but guess how long we've been together? 
61 years. Can you <laughs> You'd think he'd be tired by this time and leave home, wouldn't you? But I told him the other day, I said, honey, I'll never leave you. I'll just never leave you. Just keep paying the bills. <laughs> paying the bills. And no girls are going to leave you then. And so uh, he is at home now. He's like 89 years old. So I'm so happy. I was telling him, I'm so glad I know someone older than I am. <laughs> and so uh, he said, yeah, you would. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, uh, he Neither of us have been sick in bed in that length of time. We've never taken a prescription yet either. So uh, anyway, we've been, I've been working on him, keeping him healthy. So he, he's still uh, hanging in there just fine. So let's go uh, uh, back now and think about uh, what my father said about the war. And uh, we said... Daddy, this just can't be a war. Don't tell us that. Anytime he predicted anything, he was always right. And we said, oh, no, don't be right here at this time. He said, no, I think so. But do you know he never did get to know that the Japanese jumped on us on Pearl Harbor because he and my older brother were killed in our family airplane in the mountains of New Mexico. And I was there at the scene of the crash with my father when he died a few hours later, and my brother killed instantly. Now, for the war effort, the government had already started drafting people. And my older brother who was killed, although he was a pilot, he was drafted and was in the medical corps. Now, that suited his personality just fine. He was home on leave, killed in his uniform. So my father did uh, get one into the military. So this left my younger brother and me. And we as a family had said four kids, had a sister too young to fly. So the parents and the four kids, we sat around the dinner table many times uh, saying, uh, what are we going to think about if one of us gets killed? Because it wasn't that safe in those days, really. And we decided that we thought we knew enough about scripture to know that God deals with each one of us individually and not corporately. So what would happen to one of us would not necessarily increase the chances of that same thing happening to another member of the family. And uh, so when this happened, my uh, brother and I got together and we said, do we really believe that or don't we? Put up or shut up. So... We were both in the air in, a, in about a week's time, scared out of our wits, of course. But he went on to volunteer for the military, and he taught uh, uh, cadet pilots how to fly for the military. And then I came along and did my thing for the, the military. And guess what? My mother... Mind you, my father had never tagged her for anything. But when I was stationed at Lovefield in Dallas, I went there as a commanding officer of the girls that were in the fairing division, transferred there first. Mother came to Dallas, went to Lovefield, and learned how to teach instrument training in the simulator, the link trainer, on the ground. And when I had instrument training in the air, she was my teacher on the ground. 
And of course, there weren't many girls there, so she had more men. All the men were her students more than, than the girls. But I'm telling you, uh, she and I fought like cats and dogs. She had been in my classes before, uh, but uh, she s stayed up nights dreaming of hard problems for me to solve. She was determined to crash and burn me, and I was determined she wasn't going to do it. <laughs> and so we, we fought like everything. But sure enough, uh, I no doubt got better link training than anybody got because she worked so hard trying to mess me up. <laughs> so my father then did get his, his three kids into the military and his wife into the military. Now, my younger sister was uh, very expert in secretarial stuff and all of that, and she worked for lawyers who worked for the government. So that's the closest she got, but she was too young to get into the uh, uh, flying part. Well, let's think now uh, what the situation was about that time. Uh, we needed pilots, and the fearing division particularly was hard up for uh, pilots and needed more than they had. And so they send out an edict to all of the civilians in the nation uh, for the men and say, uh, if you have as many hours as 250 and a commercial license and a horsepower rating, march yourself up here to Wilmington, Delaware, and take a bunch of uh, military tests. And if you pass it, uh, and if you want to volunteer, we'll let you be a pilot for us. 250 hours. So the nation got desperate enough that guess what? They started looking for girls. Anybody could fly an airplane, even a girl. So uh, we were almost unheard of, no girls. So they sent out an edict, Fairing Division did, and said, girls, if you have twice the uh, qualifications a man does, we might look at you. <laughs> so you can see what they thought about girls at this time. The men needed 250 hours of flying time. The girls, they wanted us to have 500. So, uh, and a commercial license and a horsepower rating. So uh, I, I qualified. And so I went to Wilmington, Delaware, my, uh, at my own expense, of course, to take the test and see if I could uh, pass and to uh, volunteer. And uh, I was girl number 12. And we finally got 25 uh, uh, girls, and I think we had maybe three more that dropped out or didn't quite get in, but 25 is the, the unit that we usually uh, worked with. And uh, we uh, came to uh, Wilmington, Delaware, and to, took our tests and everything. Now, you can see, uh, when we girls got to, it took us about three months to find the 25 of us, when we averaged our time, we averaged 1,100 hours each. And so uh, this was, as I look back on it even then, it was really good that they got our qualifications up high because that gave us enough experience that we had already pulled all of our dumb stunts at home. <laughs> and so we weren't pulling dumb stunts when we got in front of the men. So since all of us had just been flying in a man's world, I had, uh, it was a very easy transition to go to the military. They're just more of the same thing, more, more guys. And I was quite comfortable uh, with it and uh, didn't feel, as I say, that too much of a transition. But interestingly enough, they let the men take all their uh, exams and everything 
on the big runways at the uh, uh, Wilmington Air Elsa Airport. But when they wanted to test the girls, and we had to do the, a fair amount of flying, they sent us about 10 miles out of town and gave us a grass field that from the air looked just like a postage stamp, all grass, no runway, just grass field, but surrounded with trees. You know, up there they got trees everywhere. And so the trees were all the way around it. And so you had to come in whatever the wind direction was. It didn't really matter uh, because you had to come over the high trees uh, to, to get down, and it was so short that to, not to hit the trees on the end, you had to do a little bit, of, quite a bit of maneuvering and to, to try to stop. And if you couldn't uh, really uh, saw that you were not going to be able to stop, we purposely ground loop it. You slam on one brake and <laughs> around like this. And if you get too wild with it, you'll drag a wing and uh, crash the plane. None of us, we did, uh, we uh, did our uh, ground loop over and over, and none of us drug a wing. But we didn't hit any trees either. And uh, when you'd come over the trees, those of you who are uh, pilots, especially in the small airplanes, you can uh, slip an airplane. Come over the trees, uh, and if you do your normal descent, you're way down here in the middle of that field before you can ever touch down, and you're going to hit the trees. So you come back up here, and some of us knew how to slip an airplane, and you would show the others how to do it. But you get over the trees, and then you cross controls and throw the wing up like the, your nose up, and the wing, you sink down real fast on a wing, but then you straighten out right before you hit the ground. And so that gets you, lose your altitude real fast over the trees so that you can stop down the other end. Now, the worst thing that happened to us is one girl uh, thought that she was going to stop and didn't have to ground loop, and sure enough, she stopped a little too fast, and the airplane went up on its nose, and she broke a propeller. That's the worst thing that we did. Now, uh, as I look back, if we hadn't been in, as uh, experienced as we were, we would have torn up everything in sight, nearly. And uh, the men accepted us just fine. Another thing, you, we had all been flying with men, and I say, I was comfortable, and you know how to, we girls had learned how to kind of handle ourselves around men. And there's one thing that uh, I learned early on as a little kid. I had uh, a number of uncles and, uh, uh, of course, uh, my two brothers and, and uh, father, and I learned very early that you men have a very sensitive ego. <laughs> and if we girls are smart, we don't mess with it. <laughs> and I learned how not to mess with the guy's ego. Uh, but do you know, it, uh, that uh, was never a negative as far as I was concerned that you guys have an ego. God made you that way. And I think you're a lot more productive because you do have it. So uh, uh, keep, your, keep your ego and, and put your standards up high that you know you can do something. And uh, you'll be blessed for it as long as you don't put your foot down on some of us, see, at the same time. So, uh, and I, I, uh, I am not a militant feminist at all, but I think it's great that girls have had opportunities that we have had that we could show uh, that we could do something. And so that, that part of it uh, was, uh, uh, has been really to our advantage. Now, let's uh, think about uh, how it was to 
uh, be flying in the fairing division. Maybe before I get into this, we, uh, the 25 of us were divided in four groups. And uh, as I said, I was sent to Dallas to be the commanding officer of the group that started there. We had one in Delaware that stayed and one in uh, Detroit, Romulus, right there uh, by Detroit and one in Long Beach, California. So we had four places in the fairing division. Now, in the meantime, while we were flying for oh, 10 or months or 12, I don't remember how long, but uh, pushing a year's time, not quite a year, while we had, were flying that just the uh, 25 of us, uh, the, there was a training school that was training girls who were training to be uh, uh, a military pilot. And uh, uh, they had to have at least 35 hours to start into the training school. I don't think that was at the very end. Maybe they didn't have to have that. But anyway, the uh, training school, when uh, the men graduated, they had 210 hours when they graduated. And when the girls graduated, they had 210 hours. So that was very good, equal uh, education that they go gave both the girls and the men. The fairing division would pick out uh, uh, girls. I, they probably took maybe 20% of all the graduates, and the uh, uh, rest of them went to the training command, which had training bases all over the nation, and a few girls would go to each base, and whatever flying activities they had at that base, they would utilize the girls to the best advantage what they had there. And so the uh, girls in the fairing division, our job was to take airplanes after they were built to places in the United States where they were needed, mostly to probably training schools where they were, were needed. And so sometimes we went to the factory to pick up the airplane, and sometimes the factory pilot would bring it to the base, and we'd pick it up there and take it wherever it was needed. So as time went on, in the fairing division was the... Uh, best division, I guess you'd say, to see different kinds of airplanes. It was the only uh, branch of the service that was, uh, uh, has, uh, was obligated to move all different kinds of airplanes that the uh, Army Air Corps, as it's called at that time, had. And so uh, I got to see every kind of different airplane wherever I happened to be, right place, right time, and before I got through, uh, and they sent us all home uh, at the end. Uh, I had gotten to fly every kind of training airplane and every kind of fighter airplane and bomber, twin engine, four engine, and cargo. So there was really nothing in there that I, that I missed, primarily because I was in the fairing division and I was sometimes at different places in it. So I got exposed to the different airplanes. And I never asked to fly anything, but they would come to me and say, uh, we think you're ready to fly the so-and-so. And, uh, and my reaction would be, oh, I bet that's going to eat my lunch. Ooh. So I, I'd get, you know, I kind of half get scared, but I was thrilled to do it. Oh, yes, sir, yes, sir. Glad to do it. And I really was thrilled to do it. But at the same time, you kind of get a start. Oh, my gosh. Am I going to have to handle that one? And then on our uh, flights, many times you would leave the base 
and uh, uh, deliver an airplane, and they'd say, well, can you fly so-and-so? Well, yeah, checked out in that. Well, that so-and-so needs to go over here. So you would get assigned another kind, get out of one kind, get in another kind, take it over here. If they had something that needed to be moved and you were qualified to fly it, they may give that to you and you'd go over here with it sometime. When you ran out of uh, places that they had assigned to you, the first thing you were supposed to do is get the first uh, means of uh, transportation home. Most of the time it was airliner. And other times you could if there was a military plane going where you were going. I tried that a few times and I did not like that. Why? I wanted to kill me. I didn't want some of those pilots I was with killing me. <laughs> they had less time than I did many times and they scared the layouts out of me. <laughs> I rode to Florida one time from clear to New York uh, in a, a B-25 with a wild pilot who decided he was going to fly a treetop all the way, you know. And uh, I thought, I was up in the cockpit area, and I thought, if he's going to kill me, I might as well enjoy this flight, because there's not a thing I can do to help him from killing me. So I went down in the nose, and I'm telling you, I got the best view you ever saw on the, I said, down the nose. Ah, you know, I was scared. I thought, I'd be just as dead down here as it went up in the cockpit. So, <laughs> And so there were dumb times like that that I, hooked a ride with the military, and I decided, uh-uh, that's not smart. <laughs> and so you go for the airliner. But the airliners, we had uh, uh, a card that said that we could uh, dump anybody on the airliner, and we did. In other words, we had priority. Uh, I think, uh, well, I don't think we could not, uh, we could not bump, everything was in priority in those days, but we couldn't bump a senator. I think that was our, our, our uh, their uh, legal thing. You couldn't do that. But you could bump anybody else. And I remember bumping some, you know, with birds up here, bird kernels and stuff. And so I learned very fast that when the airplane came in that I was going to bump somebody, I'd go hide behind the door until they got off and rant and rave. And then I would sneak out right fast while they weren't looking and jump on the airplane. <laughs> so they didn't know it was that I was the one that was doing that. And I don't blame them. 3.30 in the morning, I, I, I dumped a bird uh, colonel uh, in Phoenix one time, and I thought, that's, that's not too smart for him to know who I am, you know. So <laughs> anyway, uh, those were kind of the uh, uh, wild times. Now, let's think how different that was then than it is now of flying. So when, uh, when I took off for the others, uh, what I had to get, you had to go from uh, A to B. So what kind of good help did I have for navigating? I had an outdated map, and we weren't ready for the war, and so all of our maps were not where you could identify on paper what you saw here on, on the ground. I'd have a, an outdated map sometimes to scare you because you'd know you were off course because so-and-so was on the map and wasn't there. It was there and one on the map, you know. So uh, anyway, the map, and I had a jiggly compass up here, and you know, every time the airplane would go, the old compass would wiggle around. You couldn't make that thing stay still like it ought to. First time I ever got a gyro, I was, oh, hallelujah. <laughs> so anyway, the old jiggly compass and my wristwatch. Now those are my great navigation aids. Now what do they have now? All kinds of good stuff. We didn't have radar. We didn't have 
satellites. We didn't have anything to help us like you have now. Now, the pilots today, uh, the least of their worry is whether or not they can find B when they take off from A, if they decide that's where they want to go. They're not worried about finding it. And that was a big deal. That was what you were worrying about uh, to uh, try to find where you're going. Weather come up and the engine act up and, and uh, you didn't know where you were. Next thing you had to go to the bathroom and you couldn't. And so uh, it, there was a lot of things to worry about, especially mostly to find where you were going. Now today we've got everything like, you know what a GPS is. You've got them in the cars now. You've got them in your hand and uh, tells you exactly where you are. You can find your girlfriend's house in Chicago in the residential area and go right to it. That's how accurate it is from satellite and everything. The GPS, I'm telling you, I'd have killed for one of those. <laughs> if I'd had any opportunity, I've never heard of such a thing. So finding where you were going was uh, one big issue. Now, uh, another thing, uh, there's a lot of aspects of this. One thing to think about in, in uh, doing the uh, uh, navigating was uh, we, uh, sometimes I didn't even have a radio. Well, what difference does that make? Well, it makes a little difference when you get to uh, a traffic area in, around where you want to land. But uh, other than, the, than uh, uh, that, when you're out, in, uh, out on the road, it didn't really do you any good. Why? Because the ground didn't know where you were, and the morning you knew where you were. <laughs> Nobody could help you. And so uh, what you didn't have, and another thing, uh, we didn't have oxygen. These, these airplanes were not pressurized, and uh, rarely did you ever have anything like an oxygen mask or something uh, to use, because uh, you, when you did not have oxygen, you'd have to stand at 10,000 feet and below. Well, that meant that you couldn't get up and go over weather or see a little crack or hole here and everything. You couldn't do that. Sometimes you decided you were in such a bad shape, we didn't have good weather reports either, that you'd get in bad shape and you'd already gone past your point of no return and couldn't go back and it was just as bad weather behind you as it was in front of you anyway and you see a hole or a crack and finally you think well I believe I can go up through here and so you'd take up and go up like I did one time stayed up longer I knew better but you get in the bind you can't do any differently up there no with no oxygen pretty soon you go to sleep and so I woke up and I was down like this I said, ah. man I woke up in a hurry because I got enough oxygen to see where I was so uh, the things that would uh, be so important uh, to us at that time frame is not of concern to anybody now, particularly they can find where they're going and have the security and not have to even think about it. They can just say, this is where I want to go, and you've got all the equipment and everything to tell you, and you know exactly where you're going to go. And you worry about other things, engines and all of that kind of thing. So. Uh, uh, flying was uh, just a little bit different in those days. Now, one time I was uh, going along and uh, uh, heard a guy call in to the radio, and he says, uh, I don't know where I am. I just don't know where I am. And the ground station, oh, we wish we could help you. 
And so, and I'm hearing this, of course, and so I look around everywhere, and I'm the only bug in the sky, and I don't see him anywhere. And so I, time goes on, and uh, uh, he calls him again. And he says, I'm running out of gas. I'm just running out of gas, and I still don't know where I am. Oh, we do wish we could help you. <laughs> and I keep looking and looking. I never did see the guy. No telling where or what direction he was going. But uh, I thought, well, I'll hear from him again. Just wait. Why do you think I was so certain I'd hear from him again? Who always wins the little tete-a-tete? Mr. Gravity always wins. So I knew he'd be coming down. He said he was out of gas almost, so I thought, I'll hear from him again. So I was very uh, anxiously waiting, and sure enough, he calls in, and he says, I'm going down, I'm going down, I'm just going down. So I never did know what happened to that guy. I didn't know if he was going the opposite direction I was going or what, and I never, I never heard from him, I never saw, because you don't know, he'd been way over here, they might have said that he, we didn't have as good communication now, we didn't have television and all that kind of thing to give you the latest of the afternoon for the day. You see, there wasn't any such thing as that. So there was no way that I could really keep up with him or anybody know where he was. So you can see the kind of uh, uncertainty, you might say, that we had at that time. Now, uh, we uh, did not, uh, as you can see, how we were trying to go, and you were watching everything. And when you're flying the fast airplanes, as I was, uh, uh, pretty soon only the fast, you go through all the others and pretty soon they keep building more fast ones and uh, they need, like your fighters need to be sent overseas and, and uh, no fighters were flown over, don't have the gas for that, so they, we took them to the ships, uh, at, mostly at Newark area where they uh, put them on the ships. Now we girls did not fly overseas. There were very few handful of girls that would be qualified for that in the first place. And secondly, we were not allowed because we were girls. <coughs> I didn't take offense to that at all. I would have been one of them who might have been able to go. Uh, but I was not offended at all. I thought, what's the big deal? Ground's just as hard over here. I'm going to get lost just as fast over here. The engine's going to quit me, and I'm going to crash and burn over here just as fast as I would if I went over there. So what are they keeping me from doing? Not anything. I'm just as big a risk one place or another. And so, as I say, I'm not a militant feminist. They didn't have to do that for me, and I didn't think the men wanted us over there anyway. They didn't have accommodations and all that kind of thing uh, for us. So uh, I didn't feel I had to prove anything to anybody. But now, in the States... Uh, if you're flying the fast airplanes, keep in mind those days, we did not have alternative airports. There were very few airports. And the alternative ones were usually short, short runways. So if you had a plane that needed a longer runway, uh, there were very few of those in the direction that you happened to want to be going, but most of them were in the cities. And so the cities, though, were the ones that had the nicest hotels and they had live music and dining and dancing. Uh, downstairs. And so being uh, uh, at an airport at the end of the day, uh, they'd have transportation, you know, if you come landing in, usually they'd come out in a jeep or something and pick you up. You didn't have to walk uh, into the 
uh, building and all. Now, when we'd go to the, uh, the uh, big hotels and the dining and dancing, there was only, I never did see another girl out on the road. I think one other time I did when she was in trouble and I happened to go into El Paso and helped her with her trouble. But what do you think her trouble was? She had to go to the bathroom. She ruined her clothes. She sat in the airplane, waited in a hot summer day for me to show up. And so, help me, I had a clean pair of, of uh, uniform slacks that I gave to her. Now, they take care of that kind of thing today. But you can see the worries that if we weren't worried about crashing the airplane, you were worried about having to go to the bathroom <laughs> on a long flight. But uh, anyway, when we would go out in the evenings, I'd always be with four, five, six men, and I'd be the only, only female uh, in the, the uh, hotels and with the dining and dancing, and I always wanted to turn into a girl. Now, I wore a uniform, not this one. Now, we, uh, 25, had a different uniform, and uh, incidentally, there are some pictures up here uh, of uh, some of my uh, photographs that were all the military ones were sneaked out of the photography room uh, by uh, the guys that stole them for me. We were not allowed to have cameras, so I never took a picture. But these are all military uh, pictures, the ones that are of the World War II, but they're up here. There is a, uh, a uh, uh, biographical piece of paper over here that you're free to, to uh, pick up if you want it. But uh, uh, anyway, I was with these guys, and uh, uh, of course, uh, we were in uniform. The original group of us had the, the same uniform, and so when some of the girls came out of the training school, first ones that came into the fairing division, uh, our name was WAFS, and we're WASP today. We were Women's Auxiliary Ferrying Squadron. Now, notice we were uh, auxiliary group, we were in the fairing division only, and we were a squadron, a small group. So you see that name didn't fit everybody when they started coming out of the uh, training school to us. That's when they changed the name to Women's Air Force Service Pilots. So, uh, but the first group of us had a uniform. We wanted to get that same uniform for some of the girls that came out to us first, we go back to the tailor in Delaware and say, look, we want some more uniforms like this. And he just laughed at us. He said, I used a remnant piece of fabric for y'all. I don't have any more. <laughs> and so we never did get another. No one but the original ones ever got a uniform like some of those that you'll see in here. And then what we have on now uh, is representative of what all of us, when we became wasps together, is the, uh, more of the look that that we had at that time. But uh, back to the uh, hotels now. Uh, I wanted to turn into a girl. When nighttime came, I want to get out of my uniform, I want to be at the guys in this nice uh, setting in the hotel. But how are you going to do that if you are uh, in a fighter? Now, we learned early on, if you leave in a, in a twin engine uh, uh, airplane, leave the base, you can take any kind of worldly goods that you want in there. But you go deliver that over here, and they say, can you fly this fighter? And yes, we'll take this fighter some other place. What do you do with your worldly goods that you can't get in your fighter? 
pretty soon take you a month or more to get that thing back home to your base. So you learn not to leave home with anything that you can't get inside a fighter. So uh, uh, I had, uh, if I wanted to turn into a girl, I thought, well, I'm going to do that. Uh, I had a little uh, canvas bag about that tall, about this wide, and about four inches cardboard on the bottom, zipper on the top. Now, I could get that and squeeze it down on the floor in a little crack in between the metal seat and the metal wall on the right-hand side. Now, over here, it had too much stuff you had to use. I could scoot that down on the floor, and that's my worldly goods. But that really wasn't enough for me if I wanted to turn into a girl. So in the P-51, which I flew probably more than uh, the rest of them, uh, I got the right kind of screwdriver, crawl out on the wing, open the ammunition box, <laughs> and I, I could get a pair of high heels in there. <laughs> Lock that thing down, crawl out over here, and I had a dress that's been all over this nation <laughs> in all the hotels. It was uh, uh, a black, light wool, a black, lightweight wool, short sleeve, but it had a silver nail head pattern all up here. And we gussed it up in those days, too. All these little nail heads up here, and down on the bottom had all the little pattern of nail heads, and then all over the fabric, this sprinkled all over were little shiny nail heads. And so I could roll that thing up, stick it out here in the ammunition box, and when I got to the hotel, hang it up in the bathroom, turn the hot water on, shut the door, and steam press that little booger. <laughs> then I could march downstairs with all of the guys and turn into a girl for a few hours. Then, then the next morning, I'd be back in uniform and sailing off again somewhere. Now, as we would sit around that uh, night, uh, ironically enough, from the very first when we were in Delaware even, I don't know how I got tagged, to always be the navigator. And uh, the reputation got uh, out through all of the men and everything else as uh, time went on uh, that I was a good navigator. Well, since that was the, the skill that you really wanted and got more scared not having, uh, I, I said, I told the guys, the only reason that if I am a decent navigator, the only reason is that I am a big chicken. And I pay close attention. I'm too scared not to. And so uh, the guys, uh, as we'd sit around at night, would think to ask each other, well, now, which way are you going? Where are you going? And I say, which way are you going? Well, I'm going this way. <gasps> I am too. And I said, yeah, I am too. I'm going that way. We're going to follow you. We're going to follow you. And I said, I don't care if you guys follow me. I said, but don't be a dodo and sit on your mat when I get in trouble, I need your help. One guy one time who knew me really well said, oh, guys, don't believe a thing she has to say. I said, you just watch her. When she gets out her comb and her lipstick, we're getting close to base. <laughs> and that's the truth. I would say they'd be following me, and I'd say, okay, guys, back off, back off. Give me a little room. Give me a little room. And I'd be getting down in here and trying to find my lipstick and my comb and everything, uh, flying it with my knees, and I'd be all over the sky, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they'd be backing off over here, and pretty soon I'd say, okay, guys, and they'd go piling back in again, you know, we'd take off and go. So uh, if you're the leader, you have all the, uh, the blame and also all the authority also that you have. And uh, 
I'll have to uh, uh, tell you, I don't know how my time is going. Somebody, somebody tell us I'm supposed to quit here. Uh, now, see, I don't have a leader. Nobody's telling me anything. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what time it is. Anyway, because I've got information overload. We could go on and on uh, here. And I forgot just exactly what part I was thinking about telling you. <laughs> oh, let's, let's, speak, let's go back. Speaking of uh, at navigating, when the guys would get out of training school, like they had 210 hours, and they get in the fairing division, uh, took a certain uh, small percentage of them, and they didn't really like to get the graduates because, why? Because you had to fly all over the country, and they weren't quite ready for it. So I got assigned many times to take uh, four or five men on their first flights across the nation when they got out of school and from the fairing division. But the uh, uh, operations officer would always call me ahead of time and say, you're on orders now to take some men on their first flight. Said, I'm going to let you come over here first before I call the men. And so I'd go over to the operations office first, get behind the, the counter and behind the door, and, and peek. He'd call the men in. And for the, this was purpose. The guys would start looking at their, their orders, and they'd think, oh, golly, look, we get to go to Florida or wherever it was. Oh, yay, you know on their, some of their first flights, and, and uh, uh, oh, and look, we get to fly so-and-so. Oh, you know, that was really good. They were getting so excited, and pretty soon one of them would say, well, who's going to be the flight leader? And they'd look up the top of the orders, and there would be my name. That's the girl, they say, <laughs> to the operations officer, and the officer would say, uh, yes, sir, uh, that is a girl. Well, blah, 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 blah. You know, and I'd be watching, and the guy who mouthed off the hardest, I'd have him picked out. And the other guy who mouthed off the next hardest about his crazy girls that they had to go with and everything, and why did they, why was that done to them to have to go with a girl first time and all that stuff? And so I'd have them picked out. So if you're the flight leaders, I say you have the responsibility, but you also have the authority. And so I'd say, well, old Bill, the loudmouth, would you like to lead the first leg of the flight out? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, I would. And so I said, okay, you uh, go ahead and uh, take off. I'll bring up the rear, and I'd name Bill, you go first, and Joe next, and so-and-so, see? So we'd all go off, and I'd bring up the rear. So we'd get out on the flight, and I'm telling you, by the first hour, so hour and 15 minutes, I'm telling you, it's getting off course. Supposed to go here, and here we're edging out over here. Well, after about an hour and 15 minutes or something like that, I would let him go just as far as I thought I had sense enough to recover. Now, keep in mind, I'm out here too, you know. i got to take care of me. So I can't let him go so far that I don't figure that I can chart a course back over here somewhere and, and find it. And so uh, by the time uh, that I think it's time for me to take over, by this time, he knows he's lost, and he's all over the sky, and he's looking, and he's, you know, he's just around like this, his airplane's going like this. And I'd call him, I'd say, uh, oh, Bill, uh, uh, would you, are you getting tired? I'd be glad to take over if you like. Oh, yeah, 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 that'd be fine, you know, that's fine. So I said, okay. And so I would pull up in front of him, and I would purposely keep his wrong heading for at least 10, 15 minutes or so, and we're already off course, and I just keep going off course that much longer on his, his heading. And then 
just as dramatically as I knew how to do it, I'd lay that thing over and run like this and go right back over here and take a, a whole other course. And by that time, we were, you know, a long way off. And I always hoped I had sense enough to find it myself, you know. And so uh, we'd get to, get to, to the uh, next station, and in the office, uh, all the guys would be walking around and looking, you know, they're waiting for me just to absolutely chew his ears off. And uh, I would just la-di-da, you know, and not, not do a thing. And the, the guys would get nervous, and pretty soon one of them would come up to, to me, not, not old Bill, uh, but the others would come and say, we were off course a lot, weren't we? And I'd say, oh, no big deal, guys, no big deal. We got here, didn't we? This was the destination, so let's don't sweat it. Let's don't sweat it. You know, let it go. Well, the next time we took off, I'd say, oh, Joe, the next bad mouth, how about, would you like to leave the next leg of the flight out? Well, okay. <laughs> he wasn't too interested in it, but he had to do it if I nailed him. So he'd take off, and so help me, he'd get off course too. I'd pull that same stunt on him, and when we'd get to the down, and everybody was waiting, you know, for me to tell them how, what they did and what they didn't do, and, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I wouldn't just, oh, la-di-da, and then talk about the weather or something. You know, no big deal, guys. Well, this is destination. We're all right. And do you know, by the time we finally got to where we were going to deliver, I had a bunch of friends, and they started learning more how to navigate also. So we accomplished a lot, and I never had to chew out a guy. Now, keep in mind, we're, uh, I would never want to put down a guy in front of his peers. I never did do that as a college teacher for 30 years. I would not uh, intimidate anybody in front of his peers. That's not the way to get something done, I don't think. And so uh, the guys never did mind the word to get around that I wasn't such a bad one to follow. Uh, and, uh, uh, but that was a, a big responsibility. Now another uh, thing that impressed me a great deal was the fact that uh, I got tagged to be the, uh, uh, the radar guy, the guy that did testing on radar, we'll put it that way. Radar was not used here. We didn't know what in the world it was. And they came to me and said, we want you to be the radar test pilot. And this was off the south of Los Angeles, out by the Pacific, out in the boonies where you couldn't see anything. They had some trucks out there and, and a little uh, hut. And so I was to uh, do some radar testing, but what I tested went overseas, not here in America. We didn't use it here at all. But I was sworn to secrecy of what they told me and I could not use the word radar to another pilot even, and said not could talk about anything. Now they had uh, uh, me in a twin engine airplane, had two engineers uh, sitting behind me with their clipboards and their headsets to bird dog what I was doing if, if it matched to what I was told by the ground. Now they had me blocked out, what you call flying under the hood. I could not see. So then the only thing I could see was the instruments. And I was told to do this and this and this and so forth. And then they had a road grader to scrape out some uh, 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 weeds down the way to play like that's a, uh, uh, a runway. 
and to come in and have this to line up on. And as I was coming, uh, would be coming down, they'd tell me, just keep on coming down, and at a certain speed or angle or whatever. And I thought, you idiots are going to kill me. I know the ground's down there, and it's hard. I don't trust you. I've never heard of radar before. I, how do I know that you know exactly where I am and exactly what altitude I am and how fast I'm going. How can you tell? Now, today, we don't think and think about that, do we? We'd expect that kind of stuff. And uh, uh, you can do anything you want to. Look at all of the, uh, uh, look at all the airliners, for one thing. Going in, you're high altitude, and they say, well, we're going to get, uh, we're 45 miles out, and we're going to land. And what do they do? Radar sets it for them, and they do a certain descent at a certain level like that and come right in and hit the ground without error, getting burp, burp, burp on the throttle like we had to. Just right straight down in here, and it works just fine. I never saw or thought of anything like that. And so the uh, engineers now, uh, sometimes I'd do this, and it wouldn't come out right. See, I'd be over here instead of here where I'm supposed to be. And they would uh, validate that I did everything I was told to do and accurately because they're bird-dogging all my instruments and what they're telling me. And then if that happened, they took the equipment and adjusted the equipment. And then I flew it again, come right out where I'm supposed to. Then they sent that overseas. So uh, one day I was out over Los Angeles, over the city, under the hood, couldn't see. They called me and said, uh, get out from under the hood and look at 2 o'clock, 1,000 feet above you is an airplane. I thought, wow. I looked, there it was. And that really opened a big uh, envelope for me. I thought, how do they, I know where they are, way out in the boonies, miles away from here, I know where they are. How do they know I'm me? How do they know I'm over Los Angeles? And that that's who they're talking to. How do they know they're talking to me? And how do they know this airplane is up here in relationship to me? How do they know he's he and he's I'm me? Well, that opened up a whole realm of understanding to me that way off from nowhere they could identify me and knew that I was the guy that was next to that guy. We don't think anything about that now, but to me that was a big revelation. And that gave me a degree of confidence now when they keep telling me to come into the ground. I thought, well, maybe you won't kill me. Maybe you can tell that's me and how, where I am. And, uh, uh, and then one day, we were out of been flying for an hour or more uh, out. And, of course, I can't see out or anything. And no two pilots would have ever sat in that airplane with me. They knew disaster when it was on, but those engineers didn't know uh, what danger they were in. They didn't have sense enough to know it. And so, uh, uh, not pilots, so one day one of the engineers said, oh, man, this fog really comes in in a hurry, doesn't it? And I'd been flying under the hood, and I was in the fog. Now, when the fog comes off of the Pacific, a pilot seeing it with this big bank and coming off, we have sense enough to run tail and get out of there, you know it? I must have been flying in it an hour, just lying down, no idiots, you know, that didn't mean anything to them. And they said, this fog really nice. Come in in a hurry. And I said, fog. And I opened that thing, and sure enough, it was all in the suit. And so that really ticked me off. Uh, and I called, I said, to the station, I said, if this stuff, I couldn't use radar, if this stuff is anything at all, give me a heading to the Long Beach Airport. 
They gave me a heading to the Long Beach Airport, and I was familiar with the Long Beach Airport. It has hills like this and hundreds of oil derricks all over the thing, hundreds of them. And uh, sure enough, they gave me a heading to that airport that I was familiar with, and so helped me, that heading led me right straight to it. I was familiar with it, made my uh, approach and everything, and landed. And the guys at the base said, how did you do that? How did you do that? And I said, oh, I just lucked out, guys. <laughs> Biggest lie in the world. If I hadn't had a heading, I never would have found it. So you can see what, how great what we have today that we didn't have then. And uh, uh, one uh, other little tale, I know it's time to go. No one is stopping me. I'm waiting for somebody to, you know, give me the whatever sign, and I don't see it anywhere. So <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, they, we had uh, uh, airliners in those days flown by uh, civilian men, of course, pilots, no girls even considered a thought of being an airline pilot at that time. Only girls that were uh, uh, started or anything was in the group that, that I was in. And incidentally, I was a 25 that uh, I was in. I was girl number 12 that signed up. Well, there are six of us alive and only two of us on our feet today. So we are almost a, a has-been, a, a, a goner, you might say. But I keep up with them. I happen to be the chaplain of the national organization of, uh, of all the wasps. And when uh, they, people, the wasps die, they call me and there are things that I do. And then I do all the uh, prayers at our national meetings and board meetings and so forth. So keep good records of all of this. And so uh, I'm happy that six of us are alive, but I surely knew when the others left. And some that are alive are not in that vigorous uh, shape. But... Uh, in any event, there were no girl airline pilots, of course, uh, at that time. So the military wanted to see if girls could be airline pilots. So they sent the girl who's on her feet today, as happened to be, sent us both from our bases to uh, uh, Detroit, or Romulus, the base there at Detroit, to uh, be uh, guinea pigs for a... Uh, um, airline kind of a uh, research problem to see if girls could be airline pilots. So we flew an airline from Detroit to Chicago full of military men and uh, uh, priority kind of uh, uh, equipment and everything, a whole bunch of stuff they'd pack up in the back of it. Now we uh, flew a DC-3 or C-47, now that's the same airplane that the civilian men were using for airline. And so we used that same airplane so they could prove what they want to know. And uh, we, uh, you know, that airliner is a, it's a tail dragger, twin engine with a, a tail dragger and with the door right back here by the tail. And so they would uh, load all the equipment, load the men, and then call us, say, okay, we're ready to go. So she and I'd come and get on in the back and walk through the passengers, mind you, <laughs> up to the cockpit and start cranking that thing up. Well, of course, the men were scared out of their wits. <laughs> Who ever heard of a girl pilot? Now, had these men been civilians, they had all jumped off that airplane. <laughs> they would have, but military, they couldn't get off. They were assigned to the thing, and they had to go. So we had the edge on them then. They had to go. 
So part of the route that we were on, we flew over part of Lake Michigan. We didn't have any flotation devices or anything. And the first time we flew over it, we were in the soup, and uh, we knew the water was there, but we couldn't see it, so it didn't bother us that much. <laughs> but one day the sun came out, and we could see all that water, and we said, ah, can you swim that far? Mm, can you? Oh, I can't swim that far. So then we, we you know, didn't feel so hot about it. But we'd get in the office with the men that come into the office after we got into Chicago, and they'd say, oh, were we ever scared? They knew that we were flying that airplane, you know. And they hadn't seen girls in uniforms, certainly with wings on and all that kind of thing. And so they said, boy, were we ever scared? And they looked it, too. And we said, oh, really? Sure enough? You were scared? Well, that's nothing. We were scared, too. <laughs> And of course, uh, then they'd really get, get uh, but now I'm rather compassionate anyway. I said, that's just too bad. That, that's horrible to have those men to know that we're up there and for three hours or something uh, have to be scared all that time. I said, let's go ahead and get in the cockpit and give them 30 minutes of bathroom time. And, and uh, uh, then they, when they load it, they won't know that we're up there. But we decided when we got to, up to uh, Chicago and we started taxiing up to the hangar, that we started getting unstrapped through our parachute and all of our harnesses and this and gotten all the little buttons wherever they were supposed to be. And whenever we stopped that airplane and turned off the second engine, we'd jump out of our seats as fast as we could, march up to the doorway, mm-hmm, hello guys, you know. And they'd look, oh, girls, <laughs> and their hair, you could watch, we did this to watch their faces, it was just hilarious. How shocked they were and then all the drain would come out of the whole face, you know. And when we get on the ground, they say, oh, my gosh, we're glad we didn't know you were up there. We are so glad. And we said, we sacrificed so you would not know that we were up there, so you would have a calm uh, flight. And so uh, there were all kinds of different things like that for being the uh, uh, first girls into different areas that the men were so surprised uh, that girls could do it. But I think, uh, again, it was good that uh, we were experienced pilots to start with, and girl pilots were being accepted, and by the time the graduates came out, they were accepted also. In other words, like, I guess those dumb girls can really do some. Who ever heard of dumb girls pulling it off? And uh, uh, then it was nice to be accepted. But we were not in the beginning accepted even in Delaware when we flying little airplanes around in Pennsylvania and everything and going to the hotels at night, people sitting around, see girls in uniform and they'd look and look and whoever heard of a girl in uniform in the first place and uh, uh, 1942 and uh, uh, they'd see wings, what, what does that mean? And so they'd ask us and we'd tell them the truth and they'd say, uh, you know, no one believed it. You know what we started doing? We told them we were elevator operators. <laughs> and they believed us and they left us alone and we could go upstairs to the hotel room and go to bed and not have to mess with them. <laughs> so no one believed us to start with. But now I think anybody would believe anything for the girl has been or can be uh, uh, where, they, where they are. So you see where from, from my beginning as an eight-year-old in a rickety airplane, and it probably was safer than most of the stuff I flew. But anyway, it had that, you know, open look to it. From that 
to being able to get in the pilot seat uh, of a space shuttle. Now see the difference that we've had here and how much uh, uh, all technology and everything that God has opened up to us that he didn't give them 2,000 years ago and God gave them as good a brains as he's given us. He gave Adam a perfect one and he messed up, but we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that had as good and all their offspring as good a brain as we had. God kept all that to himself from, for our use. And about the time that really the airplane, that he let man learn to fly, you could see the big transition we have with satellites and going up to the moon and going to the satellite. Just look at what we've done here in my lifetime even. So I wonder what's coming in the next 85 years. Who knows? Maybe the Lord come. So maybe we won't go 85 years. I don't know. So anyway, we have great things to hope for and all. So uh, I'm, I'm going to quit. Surely I was waiting for someone with a hook, you know, to come hook me up. I don't know, and I haven't watched the time, have no idea what time it is. But if you wanted me off of here and you didn't jerk me off, it's your fault, not mine. <laughs> not mine. <laughs> anyway.